Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 492nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who works with military vets to share urban farming skills. We're talking with Christopher Peterson about urban farming with vets. Christopher works as the farm manager at AOVS Urban Farm, a two-acre farm and garden in South Memphis serving economically disadvantaged veterans who have suffered from physical and or mental health conditions. Prior to this position, he ran Lock Holland Farm, a small sustainable livestock farm focusing on multi-species rotational grazing and has worked on several other small sustainable farms in the Memphis area. Christopher also previously served as executive director for Grow Memphis, now a program of Memphis Tilth, and has consulted on various other Mid-South food initiatives. In addition to food work, he holds an MA in Human Value and Global Ethics and continues to teach locally as an adjunct professor in philosophy and anthropology. Welcome to the show today, Christopher. Are you ready to rock? I am. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. So, you know, I've always gardened. You know, I gardened as a kid with my parents and always had, you know, we always had a compost bin at the house. But it wasn't, I can't say it was anything that I necessarily was just in love with. I liked the compost bin. I liked watching vegetable scraps and leaves get turned into soil. So I'm sure it was kind of lingering in the back of my head somewhere. But it was really in college that I started getting serious about growing food. In college, you know, I was very, very interested in, in different social justice issues and was kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life afterwards. And some friends suggested that on our college campus, we start a community garden. I don't think that I really got it. I didn't see exactly how that was a social justice thing, but I kind of went along with it because Uh they were excited about it. They both got summer jobs that summer, and I ended up being the person that that ran it. So I was just kind of de facto left in charge of it and absolutely fell in love. You know, for me, it, it brings together so many different issues that I'm passionate about, whether it's the environment, working conditions, health, you know, everything just kind of wrapped up into into one question. I had the opportunity to explore some of those questions in college classes and ended up writing my master's thesis on, on the subject. But 
you know, what it came down to was that I really preferred having my hands in the dirt than, <laughs> than preferred. Yeah. Right. I, just, I mean, I preferred, preferred that to, yeah. to writing about it. And so it's, you know, kind of a crazy thing for a person with a master's in you know, philosophy field to want to do. But when I came back from grad school, I was like, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to, I'm going to start farming. And I've, yeah, I've been going on almost 10 years now on different agricultural projects and, and I just, I love it. Wow. And you've landed at AOVS and that's actually how I found you. I did a, an internet search about a month and a half, two months ago for urban farming in the U S and your link was one of the links that came up for AOVS. Tell us about that and what you do there. Sure. So I'm the farm manager at AOVS Urban Farm. So AOVS stands for Alpha Omega Veteran Services. So the organization itself is a service provider for military veterans who've suffered from a, a variety of, of different conditions, you know, mental health issues, physical health issues, homelessness, things like that. So they were partnering with Memphis Tilt, which I had a connection to through my former position at Grow Memphis to start this farm. So they wanted to start a farm that could provide produce to the residents and also do you know, therapeutic and engagement opportunities, cooking opportunities with the, the guys that live here. So we house about 150 veterans at different sites around, around Memphis. I happened to be looking to, to move back to town at the time and was looking for opportunities to stay in agriculture after having been in, in rural Tennessee for, for the four years previously and got in touch with the executive director, and she's like, you know, I think that you'd really be perfect for this. You know, you have farming experience, which is different than a lot of people who are running urban farms who are trying to learn and end up in nonprofit positions as they learn, you know, and knew that I really had a passion, too, for the human side of things, so for, for building community and that, mm, that sort of thing. So yes. I came on board, and we took two, two acres that were basically Bermuda grass lawn and transformed them into an urban farm. Wow. And, uh, and, in a bigger garden over, yeah, over the past, going on two years now. So I work in a team of three. I manage the farm, do the, the design, the planning, the planting, run the team. And I work with a team of two, uh, two other folks that, that teach classes, so do therapeutic activities and educational activities at the residents. About half of what we grow goes directly back to the guys that live here. So we do a small internal free CSA for guys that have their own kitchens. And for our site that, that have a chef, we provide some sort of bulk item every week. So that's kind of our midweek harvest goes to that. And then at the end of the week, we harvest and we sell on Saturdays at a local farmer's market, the Cooper Young Farmer's Market. And the um, revenue raised there allows us to be able to pay the residents that work with us to work on the farm and also goes back into investing in the projects. So that's sort of how our produce goes. And in addition to that, we've been developing this garden we call the Wellness Garden that's more of a sensory sensory experience. So we have some fruit and nut, nut trees there, but... The focus is really on native planting and flowers to, to try to attract pollinators and birds so that we can do, do more therapeutic activities. And it's also for those of us, you know, on the farm that come from a farming background, a chance to, for us to relax and, and have that experience, but also to expand our, our skills and growing and think about more about how our farm fits into the ecosystem. Wow. And so my understanding is, is that this facility is in the middle of a housing complex for veterans. That's correct. Yeah. So our farm is, the property itself is six acres, two acres of, of, it, of that is farm. There's five housing buildings on site that house about 45 of our residents at any given time. So, you know, people are literally able to look out their windows at all times and see what we're doing on the farm. So even if they're not physically able or, or really want to, to come out, you know, we're always, uh, we're always a part of the community. And what are the challenges and benefits of working with veterans? So, I mean, one of the, there there's a lot of challenges and benefits. You know, some of the challenges are that, like I mentioned, you know, a lot of, first, a lot of our residents, most of our residents are older. So we serve veterans of, of any age, 
but right now the the clientele tends to be veterans from uh, Vietnam, Korea era, and so wow. uh, we're de- yeah, so we're dealing with you know physical limitations, right? And so we have to set up the farm in a way that is both productive but also accessible. So space the beds so people can actually get through them. Um, try to make paths that are wheelchair accessible and that sort of thing. And so that can be a challenge. It's also a challenge from a work perspective for me. You know, coming from working on for-profit farms where the, the, the goal is work fast, work hard, get it all done, get as right. much done as you can, you know, kind of having to check myself, especially as, as hot as this past summer was, and slow down, remember that we're here for more than just production, and really take account of, of everybody's health, everybody's mental state, because, you know, not everybody is necessarily sold on farming, right? There, we're an opportunity for them among other opportunities, to be involved with, right? They could, they could very well, if they wanted to, just sit inside and watch TV all day. So in some ways, we're trying to sell to them what we're doing, and it just makes for a different, different work environment. So those are some of the challenges. Some of the benefits, though, for me personally as a farmer, you know, I, I come into farming partially because it's the work has been so good for my own mental health. Oh yes. You know, for my anxiety and my my depression, that it's it's a special opportunity to be able to to make that connections with with guys that experience you know similar mental health challenges you know, feelings of isolation and depression and that sort of thing. And so, you know, that's been a huge, huge benefit to me personally. You know, I also think there's a lot of interest in working with veterans. There's a lot of programs targeting veterans in agriculture. And so it's exciting to be able to show a model that's working, you know, where, where people are really engaged, Yes. where we're really taking into account the, the challenges and being honest about what they are and, you know, to be able to share that experience. Awesome. There's a question here that I don't quite understand it says productive regenerative agriculture in urban context. Talk to me about that. Sure. So we consider what we do to be regenerative agriculture. So, you know, recently I, I read Gabe Brown's book, Dirt to Soil, and he talks about not wanting to use the term sustainable agriculture because there's no sense in sustaining <laughs> the mess we've created. The, yeah, exactly. The mess we've created. And so what we're really trying to do is rebuild the the ecosystem through agriculture. And I think that can be an especial, a special challenge in an urban context for, for a couple of reasons. One is that because of where we're at, because we're in the city and because we're at a housing site, there's a much higher emphasis on the aesthetics of the farm yes. than I'm used to. Yep. Right. And so to explain to people like, oh, this is a cover crop. I know it looks like I just let this overgrow, but I did this on purpose. Right. That kind of stuff can be a challenge. And, you know, in working in the nonprofit context, you know, there is an emphasis on being able to be productive because the financial side of things is, is important. And being able to show to the people that are funding us to get started that, that we can be productive is important. And I think sometimes setting up a regenerative system takes longer than, than just coming in and, and, you know, doing things conventionally or being able to use whatever you want, you know, herbicide and pesticide wise and all that sort of stuff. So being, you know, having to communicate how we balance these things and, you know, where we make trade-offs and where we don't, you know, can be a, can be a challenge. But it's also, I think what we're doing is, is really special because it is, we are working really hard at that regenerative side of things. It, I think it looks very different and it's productive in a different way than other projects like ours. Nice. And so you're really looking at farming systems that move forward on their own. Absolutely. You know, a lot of our stuff stems from Jean-Martin Fortier, the market gardener, but we're experimenting with more, you know, for this upcoming season, experimenting with more no-till systems and stuff like that. And really seeing, because we have the opportunity as a nonprofit to, to try different things in a way that somebody whose livelihood depends on being productive maybe doesn't all the time. You know, I think 
we're trying to embrace that opportunity to, to try out those, those types of systems. So let's talk about the guys and gals that you work with for a little while. Tell me about Ed. Sure. So Ed is uh, he holds the position now of, of lead gardener, is what we call him. He has really been with us since the beginning. So when I started out at this project, when I was sitting in the office of February 2018 doing the design, Ed was using the the lawn that is now our main farm to hit golf balls, basically. So he was the only person out there that time of year in February uh-huh. and using it using it kind of as a, a private golf course. And I just remember having this thought like, oh no, what I'm going to do is take away, you know, this activity that is clearly very important. You know, the most active person out here is is already using the space. And so, you know, I spent some time talking to him about what we were thinking, what we were doing, you know, trying to make sure that I wasn't surprising him or anything like that. And he came to me one day and said, you know, Chris, uh, I, I don't, you know, I know a little bit about, about this, you know, I grew up, you know, in cotton, basically, I'd like to, to work out here, you know, I'd wow. like to, to give this to give this a shot. And I was kind of taken aback. So we, we brought him on. And, you know, he's been with us since since day one, you know, pushing back on me when he thinks that what I'm doing is strange or weird, or, you know, very importantly, doesn't look good from out his bedroom window. Um, <laughs> right. You know, it's a, it's a unique experience. But, you know, learning along the way. And I mean, for me, that's really been the story of this project is, is our building that relationship, one, because it's important, but also because, you know, he and I, in addition to our other coworkers, you know, form the core of the farm team. And so it's been really cool to be able to share share my experience with him and learn from him because it's not, a, not an experience that every farmer has. You know, it's like the, the person that works for you is also your primary customer and the farm is also their front yard. You know, that's a really strange experience for a farmer and it, right. it's very challenging. Yeah, it's, it's very challenging, but it's been, it's been a hugely meaningful part of the project for me. You know, it, all the residents are important and all of their experience is important. But, you know, for me, that relationship has, has been probably the most valuable part of, of this project so far. Nice. So you said January of 2018. How did this idea come to be? How did, how did somebody who thought we're going to change this two-acre grass parcel into a farm, how'd that happen? They had tried to have small gardens on our site. The, the Alpha Mega folks had, had tried to start small gardens on the site. For a couple of years, so they would, you know, plant some okra or, or plant some peas or whatever, not not huge spaces. But they were struggling because it was volunteer, you know, struggling to get residents engaged. And, and you know, people would come out when it was picking time, or they would come out when it was planting time in the spring. But you know, all that important maintenance stuff, all the weeds, you know, weren't getting taken care of. So they were connected to Memphis Tilt, who has you know experience in this field, starting projects like this, and. Over the course of really a couple of years, worked with Memphis Tilt to develop all of the project goals, you know, how they wanted to engage the residents, where they thought they might sell the produce, what they thought it might look like, the methods that might be used. And it grew from there. And when they were ready to, I just came in at the right time when they were ready to hire a farm manager and said, you know, I think, I think this is the best way to accomplish this goal. You know, I think we should focus on using the BCS tractor. I think the bed should be laid out this way to meet ADA rules for spacing, but, you know, that sort of thing. And we just kind of honed it, went through a couple of design iterations and, you know, broke broke ground in the middle middle of the spring last year. Wow. And what are you growing? So we grow mixed vegetables, about 36 varieties of vegetables in total. You know, I try to balance what I think you know, the overlap of what we can sell at the farmer's market with what residents eat, eat, eat here. 
and those, you know, those two things aren't always the same, but there's, you know, in the South, luckily there's a lot of overlap in what people want. So, you know, in the spring and fall, we do a lot of greens and root vegetables. Roots have been really popular here and at the farmer's market, you know, lots of radishes and turnips and stuff, lettuces. Um, we grow a lot of lettuce for, for the sites around here. In the summer, really, tomatoes have been our, our focal point. Just because we're working on a limited space, working with nightshades has been kind of our, our biggest thing is tomatoes and peppers with a little bit of squash. Uh, we also do have blueberries and blackberries and plums as well. They're not producing yet, but um, wow, we have nice. those. Mm-hmm. And how has the farm been received by the residents? I mean, I think it's been really well embraced by the residents. You know, I think... Not every resident, right? Not every resident is out here every day working with us. We have a core group of five guys that that are farm workers on the payroll in one capacity or another in in part-time jobs. But what I've really noticed is that there are people that walk through the garden when we're not working, right? People just walking around looking at stuff. And I think the most meaningful thing for me about that and the sort of the sign that they're engaged with it is when they stop you when you're, you know, doing your rounds and, and, you know, tell you a story that some crop reminds them from their childhood, you know, about, mm, yes. you know, working with their grandparents. Cause most of these guys, you know, especially the older guys have some sort of agricultural background. Like the guy that keeps our chickens, this gentleman, Doug, he used to work in an industrial chicken house when he was younger. Wow. What we're doing with the chickens is very different, but you know, when we're able to make those connections to their personal history and their, their childhoods and stuff, you know, that's how I know that we're having an impact on, on their lives, even if they're not working with us. And how has it been received by the general public? Because this, you know, you've got to have neighbors. Yeah, so we're in a kind of a weird position where we're at. So there's not a lot of neighbors. There's an apartment complex next door to us, and we've got a, a guy that lives across the street. But there's quite a bit of abandoned housing around us. You know, all I can really say is that the thing that we hear most from people like that is, wow, I didn't know this was back here, right? This looks so different than, than what we're used to seeing around here. So we, we hear that uh, quite a bit. You know, I think urban agriculture is experienced kind of mixed in the public. You know, people worry about what they might, you know, whether food is safe, it's grown in the city and stuff like that. There's, there's still kind of a stigma to some degree or another. But I think by and large, we've been received well. Yeah. Well, and we're seeing that change. Right. You know, as people are connecting into their local food economies, there there's there's a lot more interest, at least here in Phoenix. Have you found that there? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, one of the cool things about being, to, about farming in, in an urban environment now is that we're able to share a lot more with those people, you know, people that are trying to, to grow at home and grow in the city, you know, because we are near them, you know, we can share plants if we have extra plant starts mm, yes. and vice versa, you know, people can give us. And so, you know, we're able to interact with that with those folks a lot more than I was when I was farming in a in a rural community. And so I, I do think there's people are very concerned about where their food's coming from and and increasingly maybe don't trust all the stuff they, they see at the grocery store and so they're growing their own or wanna wanna have a relationship with somebody like us. Yeah. And I'm gonna ask you a, a question about an interaction that you may have had with one of the people that have come to the farm, maybe somebody that works there that really said to you when you had the conversation with them, yes, this is the reason I'm doing this. Do you have one of those for me? A couple come to mind. One is, so we had to do, you know, our certified naturally grown application. So I've had the opportunity to have farmers I'm friends with that live in rural areas come out here and and see the farm to do our certifications or just to check in or whatever. And I think one of those moments was a good friend of mine who who I worked worked on her farm for a number of years part-time came out and said, she said, you know, this is 
this is what urban farms are supposed to look like. They don't nice. look like this. Yeah. You know, this is what it's supposed to look like. And I think that, you know, that was maybe the first time I really felt at home with the change from rural to urban farming. It was like, yeah, this is this is a thing that's important, right? This is a thing that, that we should all be getting behind. Nice. Uh, you know, I've just had something that continually comes up for me in the back of my head as we talk, and that is you started kind of sideways on a on a community garden at college and it's turned into this. And Mm -hmm. I just want to acknowledge and give you a virtual high five. This is awesome. And I want to shout out to our listeners. This is what can happen. So thank you. Yeah. Thank thank you very much for saying so. I mean, it's, it's amazing. uh, Yeah. With a little bit of patience, (laughs) what what you can do. (laughs) And, and not giving up and not giving up. Yeah. So how can our listeners help you? We obviously, as an organization, need donations to to continue to function, right? Where because we are giving away half of what we sell for free, you know, we can't capture the full market value of of what we do. So, I mean, obviously visiting our website, alphaomegaveterans.org, you can find out information about how to do that. You can also follow us on Instagram, you know, and, and encourage us would be great. Our Instagram is AOVS Urban Farm and Kitchen. So, you know, encouragement goes a long way. If, yes. You know, if you can't afford for donations, encouragement, especially after, you know, rainy springs and hot summers is always helpful. There you go. So I'm going to shift on you and I would like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. Sure. So, I mean, this is actually kind of a new thing for me to be able to talk about, but I'm glad to have the opportunity to that. You know, we've talked a little bit about the fact that right before this project, I had Lock Holland Farm um, about an hour outside of Memphis, you know, raising livestock. So we started, my wife and I started the Salatin style rotational grazing project with goats and pigs and chickens and ducks and turkeys, you know, and for a long time, that was kind of, that was the farm dream was to do that. We made a lot of good decisions. We followed some good advice like buying movable stuff that could be moved to a different farm or could be sold in an emergency. But we also ignored some things that you hear at farming conferences, right? We rented land from family, which is the avenue we pursued. And be careful about leasing the first piece of land that, that comes along because it may not be the proper one. Uh, you know, And we, we didn't listen to that advice in a way that we should have. So we ended up on this property that didn't have any infrastructure. There was no running water. There were no solid fences, really, and it was an hour and a half away from my wife's teaching job in the city. And you know, those four years were just a huge struggle for us personally and professionally. So you know, I did huge damage to my body carrying five-gallon buckets of water out to all this livestock. It was a strain on our marriage because you know, when my wife got back from this long job as a teacher in the city and an hour and a half commute, there was still work to be done every day. And after three years, we just said, you know, if, if this is going to be successful it's, at the rate we're going, because we borrowed money from friends and family, it's going to be successful for a different generation than us. And this is not really what we had in mind when we decided to do this. And so we made the difficult decision to, to close down that operation. And, you know, some people would look at that and say, well, that's not really failing. But I do think in a way that it is, you know, and it, it certainly was experienced as a failure for me, you know. And there was this question, like, am I going to be able to continue to farm? Am I still a farmer? What does that mean? You know, because farming is so wrapped up in your identity. But I learned two, I think, really important things from that. One is to, to just look at failure as something different than what our culture really is accustomed to. So I think it helped me try to remove the stigma and blame or shame or whatever from failure. There's just so many things that can make a farm fail. You can do all of the things right and still fail. Yeah. And I think... It helped me to be, you know, more able to be honest and pinpoint those things 
that cause failures, you know, do that kind of the lean farming thing, ask why five times and be more honest about it because I wasn't worried about, you know, shame or stigma around it. And so, you know, that level of honesty was really important for me. The other thing is that one, the other thing is really that I should seize this opportunity that I have now, right? So I was kind of worried coming back into an urban farming setting that, you know, I was going from 180 acres to two, right? So what does that mean? Am I, am I less of a farmer for that? And, you know, I kind of had to shake myself out of it and say, you know, if I think I'm more capable, you know, if I think I'm more capable than, than what's written down here on paper, then that's what I should do. I should make this farm the best urban farm uh, that it nice. can be, Yeah. you know, so that was, yeah, on failure. Excellent. And I have to tell you, so we're over 500 episodes in at this point, and every single episode, that's the question I ask people is tell me about a failure. And the reason I ask that question is because in 2004, I started a farming or urban farming business, and I put $80,000 into it, and we put six months of hard work into it, and it totally flopped. And yeah. in retrospect, it's like, oh, thank God that it flopped. I didn't want to be doing that. So, right. Yeah. So that's the reason I asked this question is because there's so much value in those times when we don't quite make it the way we thought it was going to be. Yeah. I mean, you're going to fail, right? That's part right. of it. a big part of it. <laughs> exactly. So what do you consider your biggest success? You know, truthfully, I really think my biggest success has been being able to learn from that failure and recover from it. I think it was really freeing for me. I was really forced to to learn a lot about who I was as a person and a farmer. You know, I think a lot of us go into farming thinking, oh, I'm capable of this like ascetic hermit life and I don't need anybody. I'll make it on my own. You know, and I think I really realized because we did need so much help and because I did, you know, miss my friends and things that I enjoyed about the city like music, you know, I learned a lot about who I was and what I wanted out of a farming career. It was also really freeing because, you know, I was always kind of a kid that was really good in school without trying. And so failure really wasn't a thing I was used to, and I was really afraid of it. Uh-huh. And and I think I've gotten over that in a, in a big way, not completely, but, but I think more importantly for me as a farmer, it really shaped, or it's starting to shape in an important way, like how I treat failure by employees on farms. So I'm really, you know, more conscious of trying not to appear upset or angry when something goes wrong. I can't say that I always succeed, but it's always in the back of my mind, you know, like how can we make this farm a place where people can fail comfortably, right? But we can be honest about what happened and move on. Also, because I did talk about, you know, abusing my body with the way we were farming, you know, learned a lot about right scale of equipment, right type of equipment and infrastructure, which is important for me moving forward, but also is really valuable as part of this project, right? I can pay attention to the equipment for the sake of folks that have more limited mobility than me. Yeah. Exactly. And what drives you? I think this is a really difficult question. <laughs> uh, you know, in some ways, I really don't think it's rational to want to be a farmer. Right? It, it doesn't, it, I mean, it, it doesn't pay well. You know, it's very, very difficult and it's it's isolating. It's hard work. Um, but it's hard work. But, you know, for me, it's always just been kind of an obsession. But I think, you know, when it comes down to it, the reason that I continue to do it is that it, sustainable farming, you know, feels hopeful. You know, it gives me reason to hope. You know, interacting with the natural world has paid, played just a huge part of my own struggles with depression and anxiety. And I think you can see that transformation in yourself, but also in the land. You know, like I can watch as we transform that Bermuda lawn here to a farm, you know, I can watch frogs come in and I can watch dragonflies start to appear. And, you know, I can see the native bees on our cover crops, that sort of thing. And so, you know, everything kind of feels crazy and hectic a lot of times in the world, most of the time in the world. Yeah. And I don't know that it necessarily makes me feel optimistic that sustainable farming is going to win or whatever you want to call it. But it makes me feel like, you know, a real change is possible because you can see it. I mean, you can see it in a short time, how it, how it changes you and how it changes the land. Wow. 
That was a powerful statement. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. Yeah. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? So I think it's probably my favorite book or the most meaningful book to me is a book, a collection of poems by Wendell Berry called The Mad Farmer Poems. So it's a collection of, of poems from different points in his career, but collected into one volume of his character, The Mad Farmer. So it's like a dozen or so poems that really kind of changed my life. So when I was in college and was kind of flirting with this idea in farming, the friend that, that said we should start this community garden uh, loaned it to me and I just really fell in love with it. And in some ways, I feel like everything that I read about farming is kind of shaped by these poems. So when I, I could go through hard times in particular, it comes back. So like there's all sorts of good little lines that pop into my head. Like there's this one, to be sane in a mad time is bad for the head and worse for the heart. And then another, when I'm feeling, I guess, more upbeat and defiant, you know, Mad Farmer says, I'm done with apologies. If contrariness is to be my inheritance and destiny, so be it. You know, and it just really, it's really motivating and keeps me going. So I, I recommend it. It's good, good for a laugh, good for a cry, all those things. Wow. I have, I'm getting chills. I have never heard of this book. I'm looking at it online right now, The Mad Farmer Poems. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Wow. Cool. By Wendell Berry. Check it out. That looks like an amazing an amazing book. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? So this is a weird thing, but, you know, I kind of fall back on my background in philosophy on this one. I'm not like a huge fan of, you know, little quippy aphorisms or anything like that, but there's a good one from Socrates that I think applies to farming. So kind of famous for saying that the only thing that he knows is that he knows nothing. And I really think that if you want to be a good grower, this is the attitude to have. Yes. You know, in a lifetime, you might get 30 or 40 seasons, right? If you're lucky, if you start young, yep. if your health holds, and there's just no way to learn everything, right? And I think failure taught me that, right? Is there's always going to be things that you don't know, you know, and I would really encourage people to think about it that way, to really think about what you don't know. So like I've started now like at conferences and stuff. It's like, what is the thing that sounds the most boring at this conference? That's where I need to be because that's the thing I know least about, you know? <laughs> ah, nice. Yeah. You know, and there's just, there's so many opportunities to learn. And, you know, if you embrace the fact that you don't know any of it, it's easier to access though, you know, audio books and books and podcasts and other farmers, right? All that stuff. So, wow. That's that's what I would advise. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Christopher. Thank you for having me. How can our listeners find you? So I mentioned our website earlier, alphaomegaveterans.org. You can also truthfully just email me personally. My email address is peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N, at alphaomegaveterans.org. So I'd be happy to uh, to chat with Hosella talking about farming. Awesome. Awesome. And you can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash A-O-V-S. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. 
It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.